Henry VIII's Pastime with Good Company, a fairly representative work of Renaissance music um, that is by the King Henry VIII himself. And I started teaching this song like the first couple of times I was, I was teaching this class, and I don't know, I just fell in love with it. I don't even know why. Like, it's dumb. It is absolutely the equivalent of like the contemporary pop party song like he's literally just singing i like having a good time with my friends like that's that's all it is it's it's not smart um but and at the same time like i feel kind of torn over it like you know how people get upset about certain musicians like you know kanye west comes out with all this crazy political talk and all of kanye west fans are now forced to like reevaluate whether or not they like this musician i feel like i'm 500 years behind on that one because you know i really like this song and it's kind of dumb and king henry the eighth is totally the biggest asshole in history like murdering his wives and like forming his own religion so he could get divorces like what the heck is up with that guy um but at any rate i just love its lightness like it's so easy going and you've got that lute music you know as much as we've been focusing on religious music in this class, I kind of wanted to drop in a completely secular Renaissance song because that's a thing that's happening. Like, as much as there's been all this re religious music, um, there's also this undercurrent of folk music that sort of runs counter to it. Um, mo much of it we don't have. Like, we some of those songs survive, you know, in the, the centuries since just because they keep getting sung over and over and over again. Um, but a lot of those were, like, never committed to sheet music. They were never formalized. Um, and it's interesting to see that, like, at the same time as music can be employed for these important religious purposes, music can also just be something that you just play in a tavern and relax to with your friends. It's just having a good time with good company, as Henry VIII seems keen to sing. Um... So I'm going to try and incorporate more of that as we go along. Um, but it's also interesting that the two are going to fuse as time goes on. Um, so here's your little pastime with good company, taste of Renaissance music, and, you know, complex political issues, because the guy who composed it definitely murdered his wife. That, 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 that's not a question. Today we're talking about our first real Faustian story in this class, and probably one of the most quintessential Faustian stories. We're reading Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. Now, I should mention that this is not the first telling of the Faust legend, and in fact the Faust legend was sort of like kicking around for quite a few years before Marlowe writes. Um, the first documentation we have of the Faust legend is the German Faust book which is a book of Faust stories. It's fairly disorganized. It's just a lot of like little vignettes and stuff about Faust going around and doing crazy stuff. Um, the best sort of explanation we have, you know, looking back at the history of Faust stories is that there probably was this guy named Faustus or Faust um, who was knocking around in Germany in the 16th century, probably around the same time as Martin Luther and company are doing their thing. Um, 
and whatever the deal was with this guy, he was like posing as a doctor and apparently like going around offering miracle cures to people, but a whole bunch of legends of him, you know, doing weird magical stuff uh, gets sort of bound up in whoever this person was. Um, at any rate, the Faust book shares a lot of the same stories that Marlowe illuminates here, um, like in the Faust book. Faust visits Charles V, the emperor, and performs magic and humiliates his knight. Um, the, apparently the legend of, like, the horse seller guy who, you know, gets mad because Faust sold him a horse that as soon as he rode him into the water, he turned into a big hay bale. Um, that's also in the Faust book, as well as, like, the deal with the devil and all of the normal Faustian elements, like, you know ultimately being dragged to hell at the end of the story um so Marlowe is definitely using the faust book as his source um but what you'll find is that a lot of our other faustian writers like goethe especially will be pulling from the original faust book less than they will be pulling from Marlowe in, in actuality um for our purposes in this class i didn't feel like it was necessary to actually go to the original german faust book because it and Marlowe actually have you know so much in common um that there's not a whole lot of reason to teach both it would just be redundant uh, but I do find that Marlowe has the sort of richer interpretation. It is specifically, you know, early 17th century English. Um, and I find that really interesting because he is adding a little bit and he's definitely adding his own perspective to the Faust story. Um, and I do for sure want to talk about that. But I do want you to keep in mind that, like, this isn't the beginning. This is, you know, us sort of catching it in the middle, as we often will. Um... So, you know, the Faust story has been around for a while, even by the, by the time that Marlowe gets his hands on it and starts modifying it. Uh, but what's more, you should also keep in mind that, like, this sort of storytelling convention of, like, taking an old story and making it your own, this is pretty normal. Like, this has been happening for, for hundreds of years at this point. The Kind of the whole point of this class is that, you know, these are myths that very much get retold and retold and changed and altered to suit, you know, whatever the needs of the time actually are. Um, you know, this goes back to all the Greek myths that have been told and retold over and over. Like, famously, the Orpheus myth um, was told and retold back in classical Greece. You know, like, you've got Apollodorus's telling of it, you've got the actual Orphic's telling of it, you've got Ovid's telling of it in ancient Rome, and then you've got, like, medieval renditions of the myth of Orpheus as well, like Sir Orpheus during uh, the medieval period. The same is going to happen with Faustus. Like, this story of, you know, the, the magical guy who goes around Germany, like, pulling pranks on people and, and doing weird magical stuff because he has a deal with the devil, um, that's going to be told and retold, modified wherever, you know, the teller is coming from to suit whatever priorities they want to, to talk about. Um... So keep that in mind. Like, there is no baseline version of this story in some sense. Like, it is a collection of stories that sort of gravitated around Faust, and while the Faust book is as close to, like, a, a primary source as we can get on whoever Faust was, you know, Marlowe is going to be just as important to the whole sweep of history. Like, more people will ultimately read Dr. Faustus um, than will read the Faust book. Um, so with that in mind, let's just go ahead and jump right into Dr. Faustus. 
Um, and let's start at, surprisingly, the beginning in scene one and his opening monologue, because there's a lot to sort of pick out and pull apart here. Um, so scene one, enter Faustus in his study, and Faustus tells us, Settle my studies, Faustus, and begin to sound the depth of that thou wilt profess. Having commenced, be a divine in show, yet level at the end of every art, and live and die in Aristotle's works. So Faust is sitting down, he's getting ready to, you know, continue his studies, and he's wondering to himself what he wants to study. Um, and he decides initially on Aristotle. He's going to study logic. He's going to study philosophy. So he says, sweet analytics. That's Aristotle's famous work on how logic works. Tis thou hast ravished me. Bene dicere est finis logices. Is to dispute well logic's chiefest end? Affords this art no greater miracle? Eh, then read no more. Thou hast attained the end. A greater subject fitteth Faustus's wit. Bid on Chimeon farewell. Galen come. So Faustus sits down to read Aristotle. He is going to live and die in Aristotle's works. He is ravished by the analytics. And yet, as soon as he starts reading, he reads this line. Bene dicere est finis logices. To dispute well is logic's chiefest end. And, Mar and Marlowe's Faustus is disappointed by this. Is that it? Like, all that logic is good for is for good argumentation? Well, that, that doesn't seem terribly valuable. You know, affords this art no greater miracle. So what, in short? Like, I can do better than this. So he bids it on Chimeon, like... Who cares? Farewell. See ya. Instead, let's study Galen. Um, Galen was one of the famous Greek, uh, like, early doctors. He, he was one of the first people to sort of study medicine and, and like, turn it into its own discipline. Um, he's no Hippocrates, but, you know, he's up there as far as the great Greek medical doctors are concerned. So Galen, come, seeing ubi desinit philosophus, ibi insipit medicus, be a physician, Faustus, heap up gold and be eternized for some wondrous cure. Sumum bonum medicae sanitas, the end of physic is our body's health. Why, Faustus, Hast thou not attained that end? Is not thy common talk sound aphorisms? Are not thy bills hung up as monuments, whereby whole cities have escaped the plague and thousand desperate maladies have been eased? Yet art thou still but Faustus, and a man. Wouldst thou make men to live eternally, or, being dead, raise them to life again? Then this profession were to be esteemed. Physic, farewell. So once again, just as he did with logic, Faustus considers this new discipline, he starts reading, and then he's immediately turned off by it. The end of physic is our body's health, he reads, and yet he's done that. Like, Faustus has successfully been a medical doctor. He has helped lots and lots of people get well. Notice how he kind of boasts here. Are not thy bills hung up as monuments? Like, he said, don't do these particular things, and people have literally posted them in the town square for everyone to read. What Faustus says is taken as great wisdom for preserving health. What's more, they're monuments whereby whole cities have escaped the plague. Like, Faustus is saying that due to my intervention, there are entire plagues that have been stopped before they've hurt whole cities worth of people. Faustus is a very successful doctor. He has helped literally thousands of people at this point. He has stopped plagues in its tracks. He has saved German cities from plague destruction. Therefore, you know, 
he did that. Like, what has he to learn from Galen? He's a better physician than Galen ever was. But what's more, look at where he goes from there. Yet art thou still but Faustus and a man? Wouldst thou make men to live eternally, or being dead, raise them to life again? Then this profession were to be esteemed. He also notices at the same time as he's like, yeah, I've, I've cured all these diseases. I've helped all these people. I've, I've been a really good doctor. Like, I've done all of this stuff. And at the same time, it's pointless. Everyone died anyway. Like, it doesn't matter how good a doctor I am. I can't, like, stop or turn back death. I can't take dead people and make them alive again. If I could, then, you know, this would be a really great thing. But, you know... What's the point of it if everyone's going to die anyway? So he questions it again. He says, well, then I'm not going to study this crap either. You know, physic farewell, he says. Where is Justinian, he goes on. Si una et eademke res legatur duobus alter rem alter valorum rei, etc. A pretty case of paltry legacies. Ex ritare... Sorry, my Latin is not good. Ex hereditare filium non potest pater nisi, such is the subject of the institute and universal body of the law. His study fits a mercenary drudge who aims at nothing but external trash, too servile and illiberal for me. He's now turning his attention to the law. By studying Justinian and the Code of Justinian, he's studying the fundamental legal code that underlines basically all of the European codes at this point in time. And indeed, the Code of Justinian is like the foundation of our code as well. Like, all Western codes are based on Justinian. Um, but he's reading this, and he's reading, you know, if one and the same thing is bequeathed to two persons, one gets the thing and the other the value of the thing. A father cannot disinherit the son, except in etc., 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 and Faustus is like, really? Like, it's just a bunch of people arguing about their shit? Why should I care about this? This is, this aims at nothing but external trash. It's not worthwhile. You know, here Faustus is talking about logic and disputing reasonably, and we're throwing that out because, you know, what's the point? We're, you know, he wants to bring people back from the dead, and yet here we are, like, arguing about property. And Faustus is like, no, this is garbage. This is external trash too servile and liberal for me it's just greed satisfying greed and faust wants more than that so the law law too is garbage unto divinity when all is done divinity is best jerome's bible faustus view it well stipendium peccate morse est ha stipendium etc the reward of sin is death that's hard supicasse negamus phalamor est Nulla est in nobis veritas. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and there's no truth in us. Why, then, but like we must sin, and so consequently die. Aye, we must die an everlasting death. What doctrine call you this? Que sera, sera, what will be, shall be. Divinity, adieu. So, we turn to our attention to probably the biggest of the possible disciplines that he could study. Divinity, theology. You know, after rejecting logic, after rejecting medicine, after rejecting the law, Faust is like, all right, then it's time to study theology. Like, obviously that's important. That deals with souls and God and all that stuff. But as soon as he starts reading, he gets frustrated again. The line that he picks, the, the wages of sin is death, or the reward of sin is death, hmm, he recognizes that that's a really difficult thing to wrap one's brain around. Like, okay, so if everyone who sins dies, but we are all sinners, then what does it matter, he concludes. 
Like, notice that Faustus is completely disregarding the sort of Christian gospel that we've discussed a couple of weeks ago or a couple of uh, sessions ago. He is not interested in the sort of mediating factor of Christ. He just recognizes that, okay, everybody's a sinner and everybody who sins dies. Therefore, there's no point to this. There's no point in studying theology. It is, as he says, just que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. It's a crapshoot, in short. So he throws out theology as well. It's not something he can control. It's not something he can do. Instead, he goes on, these metaphysics of magicians and necromantic books are heavenly. Lines, circles, scenes, letters, and characters, aye, these are those that Faustus most desires. Oh, what a world of profit and delight, of power, of honor, of omnipotence is promised to the studious artisan. All things that move between the quiet poles shall be at my command. Emperors and kings are but obeyed in their several provinces, nor can they raise the wind or rend the clouds, but his dominion that exceeds in this stretcheth as far as doth the mind of man a sound magician is a mighty god here faustus try thy brains to gain a deity so having rejected logic having rejected medicine having rejected the law and at last having rejected theology faustus says i will study magic then um and notice how alluring it is to him it is the power that he wants he wants the the omnipotence he describes he wants to be greater than emperors and kings so he can command the clouds command the weather um he is um, he wants to be a mighty god and faustus even says try thy brains to gain a deity i will ascend to godhood through my scholarship that is his plan here everything else all other human wisdom he's rejected as you know petty or stupid or pointless but here, here we have something. Here we can become truly powerful. Here we can overcome um, the problem, like all of the little petty, stupid grievances that we've dealt with at this point. Um, but notice what Marlowe is actually kind of telling us about Faustus here. Note that Faustus is assuming that he can be a deity. He wants to be a god. He wants that power. He wants to surpass his limitations. He's proud, in short. And like we'll talk about this a little bit more as we get further along and we start sort of looking at the mechanics underlying, you know, Faust's possible salvation, whether he can in fact be saved or not. But it's important to note that the first thing that we should see about Faustus, the first thing that anyone watching this play would notice, is that the dude is really, really proud. He is like extremely big for his britches um he is you know frankly just arrogant he wants all this power um now notice he does have like a good idea for that power in mind so after he talks to the good and bad angels about it and like the good angel is like no don't study magic and the evil angel is like dude all of the magic um faustus finally like is sort of thinking about what exactly he's going to do with all this power um so in the the next sort of long passage that he has the next long monologue of his um he's talking about what he would do given all of this magical power how am i glutted with conceit of this he says shall i make spirits fetch me what i please resolve me of all ambiguities perform what desperate enterprise i will i'll have them fly to india for gold ransack the ocean for orient pearl and search all corners of the newfound world for pleasant fruits and princely delicates <laughs> 
Notice the two things that he starts off with. Um, he's going to get these magic spirits to do various jobs for him. He's going to resolve him of all ambiguities. He's going to learn everything that he possibly can. He's going to learn all the secrets of the universe that humans have not yet been able to discover. But he's also going to have them fly to India for gold and find pearls under the ocean and search all over the world for all of these pleasant things to eat and princely delicates all these terrible riches. So again, the first thought in his mind, like I'm going to get myself a magic spirit to do whatever I want and the thing is going to get me lots of cool stuff. It's going to make me very smart and it's going to make me very rich. Those are the first things in his mind. So again, we can see this sort of pride peering through. But not all of it is selfish. So he says, I'll have them read me strange philosophy and tell the secrets of all foreign kings. I'll have them wall all Germany with brass and make swift Rhine circle fair Wittenberg. I'll have them fill the public schools with silk, wherewith the students shall be bravely clad. I'll levy soldiers with the coin they bring and chase the Prince of Parma from our land and reign sole king of all the provinces. Yea, stranger engines for the brunt of war than was the fiery keel at Antwerp's bridge. I'll make my servile spirits to vent after he's done with his like i'm gonna be so rich and i'm gonna be so smart he moves on to thinking about his nation his country now at this point germany is as i said the the renaissance lecture a giant mess um it is just all of these little principalities these tiny little nations that like can't actually protect themselves because they're too small their leadership is too weak um and he's saying i'm gonna take wittenberg and i'm going to protect it i'm going to enrich it um, not just, you know, I'm Faust and I'm going to be awesome, but he's going to protect Germany with walls of brass. He's going to have a moat formed around Wittenberg with the, the, by redirecting the Rhine. He's going to, like, give all of the school students silk robes and they will have, like, protection by, uh, mercenary soldiers. He's going to basically protect his homeland in short which you know isn't a bad thing he's going to chase out his enemy the prince of parma and he's going to protect his homeland um that's not a bad plan like he's basically just you know he's protecting his and his family and his uh his university his city his nation in short um he ultimately wants all of this power not just to like benefit himself although that's certainly on his mind but so he can benefit others the people that he cares about that's not necessarily a bad thing but of course this gets turned pretty wildly awry it does not take long before this sort of positive um like altruistic plan gets gets sort of wrecked um so if we go forward to to scene five where the actual like bargain is struck uh, i definitely want to spend some time here because this is going to be like this is going to be a pretty common scene in faustian literature like the bargain being struck and the terms of the deal are always going to be super important um as well as like how the how the actual nature of the demon is is portrayed just like we saw with lucifer and dante um you know how we understand evil will give us a lot of in or how we understand the devil and how we understand devils in general is going to give us a lot of insight into how the author looks at evil um and good as well so notice that faust first summons mephistopheles like they have this uh back in scene 
three um faustus like has this whole big long like speech where he quotes a lot of latin um and basically summons mephistopheles to his side and he's like ah i have summoned you and mephistopheles is like well i mean sort of not really um so right around the the middle of scene three faustus says uh did not my conjuring speeches raise thee speak and mephistopheles responds eh, that was the cause but yet per accidentals for when we hear one rack the name of god abjure the scriptures and his savior christ we fly and hope to get his glorious soul nor will we come unless he use such means whereby he is in danger to be damned therefore the shortest cut for conjuring is stoutly to abjure the trinity and pray devoutly to the prince of hell notice that like for all of faust's education all of his learning you know talking to cornelius and valdez about like how magic works he, for all his big latin speechifying all of his like i entreat god the you know and like changing his the letters of the name around you know i hail the spirits of fire and air and water i hail beelzebub prince of the east um he says all this stuff and at the end of the day Mephistopheles is like dude you, you, all you had to do is like say I hate God I hate the Trinity and, and that would have done it like if you worship the devil the devil will respond he, he's always interested in collecting a new soul um, that's should at the very least be a red flag to us that like Lucifer is willing to give his power to literally anyone who asks for it um all of the learning that faust has did not avail him here it was way simpler than he thought um but the trick is you know faust doesn't pick up on this like faust doesn't notice that you know his his brilliance and huge amounts of scholarship and knowing the secrets of magic really at the end of the day didn't matter all that much um so instead he is ready to sign up he's like yeah i don't care what do you what do i need a soul for like what, what was the what's the point of it i'm not worried about it um and of course he is told that he has to stab his arm and sign the agreement in blood um so mephistopheles tells him but faustus thou must bequeath it solemnly and write a deed of gift with thine own blood for that security craves great lucifer if thou deny it i will back to hell and yet faust responds stay mephistopheles and tell me what good will my soul do to thy lord like faust does get a little suspicious about this like why does lucifer want my soul so badly like you told me that all i had to do was say i want to give my soul to the devil and the devil will reply why like lucifer is one of the most powerful beings in you know the universe why would he be so interested in my soul and he asks you know what will my what will my soul do thy lord mephistopheles responds enlarge his kingdom and faustus asks is that the reason why he tempts us thus what you know what is what is lucifer's end game what does he have to gain from tempting people from you know offering all of his power to people who you know are just willing to give away their souls remember faustus doesn't care about his soul he doesn't think it's worthwhile he doesn't think it's you know something important or anything um so he doesn't see this as a gain for lucifer and yet mephistopheles's response is really telling he says solomon miseris socios habuise dolores in short misery loves company and that too should give us pause like it's a throwaway line you know mephistopheles doesn't give us a whole lot of insight here it doesn't really describe the whole picture of hell but much like we saw with dante mephistopheles is emphasizing that the devil is lonely 
He is miserable and sad, and he therefore wants to crowd around him as many other miserable people as possible. Misery loves company not just in the sense of, like, a sad person wants company to stop being sad, but also in the sense that, like, a person who is hateful and in despair wants to bring other people to hateful despair in order to make themselves feel better. That's kind of the, the uh, implication that Mephistopheles suggests here. Um... But, of course, Faust is not worried about this. He is not, you know, concerned for the fate of his soul. He doesn't think that it's terribly worthwhile. So he willingly stabs his arm and it bleeds so he can use the blood as his ink. And yet the cosmos is so oriented that it, like, will dry up automatically. Um, so he says, Lo, Mephistopheles, for love of thee, I cut mine arm, and with my proper blood assure my soul to be great Lucifer's chief lord and regent of perpetual night. View here the blood that trickles from my arm, and let it be propitious for thy wish. But, Faustus, thou must write it in manner of a deed of gift, Mephistopheles says. He has to sign the, the agreement, write out the, the legal terms in his blood. And Faustus wants to, aye, so I will, but he's stopped. But Mephistopheles, my blood congeals and I can write no more. And Mephistopheles is like, dude, I'll, I'll be right back. I'm going to get some fire so we can like warm it up so it'll you know turn liquid again so you can write in it. Notice that you know Faust's blood refuses to participate in the signing of this agreement. Like the blood itself is preventing it. And Faustus notices this. What might the staying of my blood portend? Is it unwilling I should write this bill? Why streams it not that I may write afresh? Faustus gives to thee his soul. Ah, there, it stayed. Why shouldst thou not? Is not thy soul thine own? That's an important question in here. Is not thy soul thine own? Faust assumes that the soul and body are his to give away. But Protestant teaching, which Marlowe is very aware of, is that the body and soul are not your own. They belong to God. Um, the whole principle underlying this, the principle of sovereignty, what you know, Luther and Calvin especially have sort of emphasized against Catholic teaching, is that God is sovereign. He makes all of the decisions. You are saved not because of your faith. You are faithful because you are saved. Um, which is some pretty tricky theological stuff, but like at the end of the day, that's one of the key things that separates Catholicism from Protestantism. And Faust finds himself wrestling with this very issue. He is not the lord of his body. He does not have the, the authority to give away his soul, in a sense. And that's kind of important for understanding how this play is going to work. On some level... You know, as much as Faust thinks that he has signed away his body and soul and that the devil is going to claim him in any moment, that, you know, all of this is doomed and that Faust is fated to perish, the possibility is that this was never a binding agreement in the first place. Um, and Marlowe sort of hints at that here. Like, it's not explicit. Marlowe is very careful about his little bits of theology that he throws around. It's never entirely sure whether Faust is, you know, doing something he can do or not. But the suggestion here that is not thy soul thine own suggests that maybe Faustus's deal with the devil isn't binding. It was, it could never be binding. Faust's soul was not Faust's to give. 
in which case it's null and void. Like Faust doesn't have the authority to give it away. Like I can't, you know, sell my parents' house to someone without their permission and agreement. Like I can say it, but ultimately the contract's going to be meaningless. It's not my house to give. Likewise, Faust cannot give away somebody else's soul, namely God's soul, the soul that belongs to God that just happens to reside in Faust. Um, at any rate, of course, as soon as Faust is questioning this, Mephistopheles is like, all right, enough doubts, enough second guessing. Here's the fire. Let's, let's sign this thing and be done. Um, but again, we get another crazy sign. Um, so Faustus says, Consummatum est, this bill is ended, and Faustus hath bequeathed his soul to Lucifer. But what is this inscription on mine arm? Homo fuge? This is Latin for man, fly, like run away, get out of there. Whither should I fly, Faustus asks. If unto God he'll throw me down to hell, my senses are deceived. Here's nothing writ. I, I see it plain, here in this place is writ, Homo fuge, yet shall not Faustus fly. Look at the way that, like, even the natural world, the laws of physics are, like, bending around this agreement. Like, Marlowe is specifically showing us that, like, even Faust's blood is rejecting his efforts. It congeals when he tries to write with it. Um, it warns him, get out of there, as soon as he tries to write with it. Like, it forms these words on his arm. It's not just Faust's imagination. Um, so the whole thing, like all of nature is trying to tell Faust to, you know, escape that this is a bad idea, that this is a terrible thing to do. Um, and we, as the audience should think the same, like we should see this as, you know, Faust doing something incredibly stupid for all of his intelligence. Again, the devil would have take, would have given him way more power if he had just asked. He's always willing to give away as much power. There's even like a little joke um, when Wagner and the clown are, you know, playing around in scene four just before um, Wagner, you know, mentions that he would give, that the clown is so hungry, he would give his soul to the devil for a shoulder of mutton. And the clown responds, how, my soul to the devil for a shoulder of mutton, though twere blood raw? Not so, good friend. By your lady, I had need to have it well roasted and good sauce to it, if I pay so dear. In short, the clown is saying, like, dude, why would I settle for, you know, blood raw mutton if I am going to sell my soul? I'm going to get the best deal I possibly can, and Faust should too. He also sells his soul cheap. Um, he could theoretically get way more time on his, on his agreement. He could theoretically, you know, get way more power under his control. You know, he's got just Mephistopheles running around at his heels for 24 years. If Faust had negotiated, Satan would have been totally willing to negotiate. A little haggling would be warranted here. Um, and yet Faust doesn't. He is completely oblivious to the fact that he actually holds all the cards. Um... Especially seeing as, you know, it may not be his soul to give in the first place. But all that aside, Faust thinks that he's bound. And we as the audience should at the very least, like, recognize that that's possible. We should see his inner turmoil and sort of recognize and sympathize with it. Um, so let's look at the actual agreement that they make. It's all... Um, in my copy, it's all in italics right here, like towards the end, maybe like two thirds of the way through scene five. Then hear me read them, Faustus says, on these conditions following first, that Faustus may be a spirit in form and substance. This one's 
a bit metaphysical, and I'm not going to try and like explain the details here. I'm not even sure Marlowe has a consistent metaphysical frame for this. Um, but Faust is no longer a body. He is going to be a spirit in form and substance. Um, this is significant to the medieval understanding of the universe. Like, people are a combination of spirit and body. Like, the soul indwells the body, and the two of them cooperating make up a whole human person. Um, Faust is giving up his body here. Um, he is no longer in control of his body. He is just a spirit in form and substance. Um, secondly, that Mephistopheles shall be his servant and at his command. Thirdly, that Mephistopheles shall do for him and bring him whatsoever he desires. So Mephistopheles is going to serve Faust for the duration of the bargain. That's, you know, why he's selling his soul in the first place, because Mephistopheles offers him a whole lot of power and riches and all sorts of knowledge and all the great things he was hoping for originally. Fourthly, that he shall be in his chamber or house invisible. This is fairly practical. Faust anticipates that, you know, having a devil run around the house might actually be a problem. So by keeping him invisible, he's, you know, going to make it so the neighbors aren't asking strange questions. Lastly, that he shall appear to the said John Faustus at all times in what form or shape soever he pleases. So Mephistopheles cannot, like, you know, be gross or ugly to Faust, um, even though Faust is the only person who can see him. This is evident from earlier, like when, when Mephistopheles first shows up, Faust is like, I want you to look like a Franciscan friar. That suits you. We'll come back to that. Lastly is Faust's side of the bargain. I, John Faustus of Wittenberg, doctor, by these presents do give both body and soul to Lucifer, Prince of the East, and his minister Mephistopheles, and furthermore grant unto them that twenty-four years being expired, the articles above written in violet, full power to fetch or carry the said John Faustus body and soul, flesh, blood, or goods into their habitation wheresoever. By me, John Faustus. So on... Mephistopheles aside, he's just got to do whatever Faust wants. He's got to serve him. He's got to, you know, like always be invisible, always be very, you know, courteous and convenient. But on the flip side, after 24 years, the devil gets Faust, body and soul and everything that goes with it. Um, they get to do whatever they want with him. So again, this is a really bad deal. Like... As the clown pointed out, you know, you can bargain with the devil, you can get a better deal, and yet Faust does not. He gives up, you know, eternity in hell for 24 years of service. That is not a good deal, and again, anyone should be aware of this. Of course, again, Faust isn't concerned. Like, Faust isn't concerned about hell, Faust isn't concerned about his soul, Faust doesn't think that he is, you know, worth all of this fuss. Um, he just wants power, he just wants riches, he wants wisdom, he wants all the stuff that he thinks Mephistopheles can give him. Um, and it's interesting that, like, the first thing that he asks for, the first thing that he wants to know is, what is hell like? Like, this seems to be an important question that Faust should have asked before making the bargain. Like, perhaps understanding hell better would be useful to someone who's about to sign away their lives into hell. Um, but, you know, again, Faust, as much as he is a smart guy, is apparently a moron. So, you know, we, we just have to sort of rot, roll with that. Um, note that Mephistopheles is pretty consistent about how he talks about hell. Like, when he's first summoned, um, 
like uh, Faust does sort of question him about hell. So Faustus says, how comes it then that thou art out of hell? Like if, you know, if I my summoning didn't actually work as a summoning, how did you come here? And Mephistopheles responds, oh, why this is hell, nor am I out of it. Thinkest thou that I, who saw the face of God and tasted the eternal joys of heaven, am not tormented with 10,000 hells and being deprived of everlasting bliss? Just like Dante, Marlowe is emphasizing here that hell is separation from God. That medieval image of, you know, evil being whatever is not God, whatever is not good, that departure, that negative quality of evil, that's consistent here. Like, that hasn't changed with, you know, Protestantism um, in, in England. Uh, again, we see, you know, Mephistopheles is in hell wherever he's at because he will always be sundered from God. He knew what heaven was like, he threw it away, and he can never, ever have it again. That's hell. He repeats it here. So after, you know, Faust states the terms of his bargain, he asks, first will I question with thee about hell. Tell me, where is the place that men call hell? And Mephistopheles responds, unhelpfully, under the heavens. And Faustus says, aye, but where about? And Mephistopheles says, within the bowels of these elements where we are tortured and remain forever. Hell hath no limits, nor is circumscribed in one self place. For where we are is hell, and where hell is, there must we ever be. And to conclude, when all the world dissolves and every creature shall be purified, all places shall be hell that is not heaven. Like before, Mephistopheles is emphasizing that hell isn't a place. It isn't somewhere you go, like in Dante, where you like go underground and there's hell. No, hell is a state of mind, in a manner of, of speaking. It is wherever hopelessness is. And since Mephistopheles is permanently sundered from God, since Mephistopheles has no hope of ever resuming his life in heaven, he is in hell, and hell is wherever he is. Um, and that is the case for everyone who is separate from God, he stresses here. Um, it is, it has no limits, it is not circumscribed. Wherever despair is, hell is as well. Um, when all the world dissolved and everything is destroyed, if it's not heaven, it's hell. That's all that there is to it. Earth itself will be hell if it is not heaven. And yet, note Faust's, Faust's response to this. Come, I think hell's a fable. And Mephistopheles is like, dude, I, I, you obviously have no experience of what you're talking about. Um, at the very least, like, when Mephistopheles is trying to convince him, you know, when he says, I am an instance to prove the contrary, for I am damned and now in hell, Faust responds, how, now in hell? Nay, and this be hell, I'll willingly be damned here. He is saying, you know, this isn't so bad. Look around you. It's the earth. Like, it's not bad. Sure, it's boring a lot of the time. Sure, there's no nothing more for me to learn in this world because I am so smart and because now I have Mephistopheles to teach me even more about the world. Um, but at the same time, he's like, yeah, this, I mean, sure, I'll spend eternity here. No problem. No problem at all. But the key here is that Faustus doesn't pick up on what Mephistopheles is laying down. Mephistopheles is hinting to him really strongly what hell is all about. Hell is separation from God. Hell is absence of good. Hell is eternity without hope. And Faust is like, I don't see it. Like, I don't get it. 
clearly his study of theology was not very good if this is, you know, his conclusion. And we, the audience, should see that. Like, Marlowe is kind of making him out to be silly in this respect, to be blind at the very least. Like, Faust is tragic to some degree, but he's tragic because of his pride, because he's not able to see how little he actually understands what's going on around him. For all of his knowledge, for all of his helpfulness, for all of his good intentions, and for all of the things that he's done for others with his knowledge, at the end of the day, Faust can't see the basic truths about the Christian universe. He cannot understand that salvation would just be his at any time if all and all he has to do is kind of ask for it. Like he feels it. You will see later on in the text frequently that like Faust is being tempted to reach out to Christ. And every time that he does, every time that he reaches towards God or towards salvation or towards Christ, immediately Mephistopheles or even Lucifer himself will show up to talk him out of it. This is one of the things that you should note about Mephistopheles all the time. Anytime Faust gets off topic, anytime Faust starts regretting what he has done, possibly repenting of his decision, this is when Mephistopheles is going to jump on him. Mephistopheles will show up with Lucifer and they're going to give him, you know, let's let's have the seven deadly sins all show up and have a party or, you know, let's go mess with the Pope for a while or let's go talk to Charles V. Let's distract you from thinking about this awful decision that you have made. Now, the other things that we should note about Mephistopheles as we're like bumming around with him, besides the fact that, you know, he is representative of this evil that is a departure from God, this hopelessness um, and this temptation that uh, he is always trying to, to keep Faust away from thinking about heaven. Um, the other thing we could we should definitely look at are, are his limitations and his powers. Um, obviously, the thing that we see Mephistopheles doing the most is fetching stuff like he is faust's extremely fast extremely capable postal delivery man like most of what faust asks him to do is go get shit uh, like go to far corners of the world and and get me fresh grapes from india or you know bring me riches from the bottom of the sea or bring me you know the wealth of the great kings of the east like this is what faust asks mephistopheles to do and this is what mephistopheles is especially eager to do um, the other thing that faust will frequently ask for is knowledge and mephistopheles is more than happy to just shove book after book into faust's hands um, and in fact there's at least one occasion like at the end of his discussion about the wife which we'll come back around to uh, Mephistopheles immediately like drops like three books on him. Um, later, after the this show with the seven deadly sins, um, as he's um, like as Faust is sort of thinking about the the situation, be like, yeah, that was a really good distraction, but you know, it would be even better to not have to go in hell all the time. Mephistopheles is like, did I mention that I also have this book? Let's just you know, every time that Faust is thinking about heaven or, you know, possibly regretting his decision, Mephistopheles has another book for him. Let's distract you with more arcane secrets of the universe. Um, but we should also notice the things that Mephistopheles specifically says that he cannot do, the things that he won't do, and the things that he can't do, which may not be the same thing. Um, 
typically understanding the limits of evil is a pretty good idea of what exactly may be good about the world and is a hint for Marlowe that you know we should be attentive to that goodness and there are two places where Mephistopheles is specifically asked for something by Faust and Mephistopheles either won't or can't do it the first one is right here like right in this passage after the the bargain is made you know Faust asks about hell and Mephistopheles willingly tells him that like hell is wherever he is and literally the second thing Faust asks for Mephistopheles turns him down um so faustus says you know i don't care that i've given my body loose for no big deal he literally says how now in hell may in this be hell i'll willingly be damned here as i read before and he immediately transitions to but leaving off this let me have a wife the fairest maid in germany for i am wanton and lascivious and cannot live without a wife um, I'm not sure if you know what wanton and lascivious is, but he's basically saying I am crazy horny and I want to definitely sleep with a woman. Um, this is as straightforward as, you know, Elizabethan English allows. Um, so he's like, dude, I am so horny, go fetch me a wife. And Mephistopheles says, no. How, a wife? I prithee, Faustus, talk not of a wife. And Faustus says, nay, sweet Mephistopheles, fetch me one, for I will have one. And Mephistopheles says, well, thou wilt have one. Sit there till I come. I'll fetch thee a wife in the devil's name. And instead of what Faust asked for, you know, the fairest maid in Germany, um, the woman of his dreams, Faust shows up with a devil dressed like a woman. Like, there's a stage direction. Re-enter Mephistopheles with a devil dressed like a woman with fireworks, because apparently, like, every time that mephistopheles shows up and does something even remotely magical there's got to be fireworks involved like there are fireworks all over the place in this show i imagine it was quite the exciting thing to watch possibly even terrifying depending on how it was shot um or how it was presented so mephistopheles says tell me faustus how dost thou like thy wife and faustus is like a plague on her for a hot horror he is not impressed this isn't going to do it he, he knows the devil when he sees one he was looking for a human woman like a hot human woman this is not that and Faustus uh, is not impressed. And notice how Mephistopheles responds. Tut, Faustus, marriage is but a ceremonial toy, and if thou lovest me, think no more of it. I'll call thee out the fairest courtesans, and bring them every morning to thy bed. She whom thy eye, thine eyes shall like, thy heart shall have, be she as chaste as was Penelope, as wise as Saba, or as beautiful as was bright Lucifer before his fall. Here, take this book, peruse it thoroughly, and again, it's another book. Like, here's another distraction book. Um, Faustus wants a wife, and Mephistopheles doesn't say he can't do it. There's at no point in this discussion Mephistopheles saying, oh, sorry, that is out of my wheelhouse, I can't do wives. No, instead, Mephistopheles says, dude, what do you want a wife for? I've got hot devil ladies, and I can get you, like, all sorts of, you know, one-night stands with all the best women ever. Like, what, what, why are we all hung up about a wife? Why a wife? Like, if you want sex, we can do sex. I got all the sex. But, you know, wife? No, let's, let's think about this. And ultimately he succeeds in distracting Faustus from these ideas of wives. But it's important to note that Mephistopheles is really touchy about this. That Mephistopheles doesn't want Faustus to have a wife. And I think this is an important little nod from Marlowe. Like, he never gets explicit about it. Um, 
But I think that this has some important significance for the text as a whole, that there is a reason why Mephistopheles is a little nervous when Faustus starts asking for a wife. Now, the other thing that we should definitely look at for, you know, Mephistopheles' limitations, um, the other place where we see, like, there is a hard limit on what Mephistopheles can do is when uh, Faust and company are hanging out with the emperor. And we don't even get Mephistopheles, you know, denying that he can do this. Um, instead, we get Faustus explaining that Mephistopheles can't do this. Um, but the, the, like... The emperor of, of the Holy Roman Empire um, is entertaining Faust and like the two of them are hanging out together and Faust is like, hey, I'm a really awesome magician. Just ask me what you want and I'll do it for you. And uh, Charles is like, okay, so show me Alexander the Great. Um, he's a powerful guy. He's got a big emperor. According to history, Charles V had like one of the greatest emperor empires in European history because you know he was the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, but because of his inheritance, he also inherited Spain and the whole Habsburgs holdings and like half of Scandinavia. It's a huge deal. Like Charles V is rocking it, and as a result, he wants to see his great predecessor, the empire builder Alexander the Great. Um, so he says, then, Dr. Faustus, mark what I shall say, as I was sometimes solitary set within my closet, sundry thoughts arose about the honor of mine ancestors, how they had won by prowess such exploits, got such riches, subdued so many kingdoms, as we that do succeed, or that or they that shall hereafter possess our throne shall, I fear me, ne'er attain to that degree of high renown and great authority. Amongst which kings is Alexander the Great, chief spectacle of the world's preeminence, the bright shining of whose glorious acts lightens the world with his reflecting beams, as when I heard but motion made of him, it grieves my soul, I never saw the man. If, therefore, thou by cunning of thine art canst raise this man from hollow vaults below, where lies entombed this famous conqueror, and bring with him his beauteous paramour, both in their right shapes, gesture, and attire that used to wear during their time of life, thou shalt both satisfy my just desire and give me cause to praise thee while I live. Now, notice, you know, the emperor just wants to see the guy. Like, Alexander the Great was such a cool dude, he was so powerful, he was so awesome, I just regret that I never got the chance to meet him. And Faustus's response is, I am ready to accomplish your spirit so far, so far forth as by art and power of my spirit as I am able to perform. But if it like your grace, it is not in my ability to present before your eyes the true substantial bodies of those two deceased princes which long since are consumed to dust. Now, Faustus is speaking on Mephistopheles' behalf here. Like, apparently they've already run into this problem. Mephistopheles can't bring dead people back to life because, you know, dead people become dirt and like they decompose and are eaten by worms or whatever and they become dirt and they you know are then like they uh give nutrients to plants and the plants are eaten and then they become other people so like for all he knows the same atoms that made up alexander the great could make up any one of us right now we are breathing and living the the famous stuff of you know the the great conqueror's past so there's no way to bring those bodies back like they're they're all over the place now that is beyond faustus's power to do 
But instead, what he can do is bring spirits. Such spirits as can lively resemble Alexander and his paramour shall appear before your grace in that manner that they best lived in, in their most flourishing estate, which I doubt not shall sufficiently content your imperial majesty. And he's right. Like, he conjures up these spirits, and a couple of spirits show up. Like, you know, spirits in the guise of Alexander the Great and his paramour, and they're both, like, really regal. And they've, like, the emperor's like, wait, doesn't he have this mole on this one side of and he has the mole like everything is perfect the the facsimile is just absolutely great but it should be noticed that this is technically beyond the power of Mephistopheles all the devil's will cannot bring a human being back into the world that's not within the devil's purview to execute whether or not it's gods is another matter at the very least Marlowe is emphasizing that it's way more difficult than you would think you can't just like bring people back to life and instead we have this cheap facsimile it is a spirit not a body which is kind of weird because you'll remember that Faust is kind of in the same situation he is not a body anymore he is just a spirit um but the other thing that we should also keep in mind is exactly what all of this these shenanigans are doing in this play like you'll remember back at the beginning of this lecture i talked about you know faust had these grand designs with all of his power he was gonna you know get lots of knowledge and get lots of money which indeed he has but he was also gonna you know clothe all of the scholars of Wittenberg and protect Wittenberg by the Rhine and he was going to like wall up Germany so it was protected from its enemies and he was going to kick out the Prince of Parma and he hasn't done any of that at this point like all of his adventures are just kind of bumming around Europe screwing with people like he visits the Pope and he messes with the Pope. He visits Charles V and he, you know, messes with Charles V's knight and he, like, hangs out with the horse courser who, you know, he sells a bad horse to him who turns into a hay bale. Like, he's pulling all of these pranks and he's, you know, living it up with his friends and he's, you know, presenting Helen of Troy to the scholars and he doesn't do anything worthwhile with all of this power, with all of this will. Um, he can do literally anything, and he's just screwing around. Now, some of the screwing around is very, you know, pointed in Marlowe's case. Like, you'll notice that Marlowe takes a lot of pot shots against the Catholics in, in all of these little side trips and adventures. Um, throughout the text, you will frequently see Marlowe emphasizing Protestantism over Catholicism. You know, first off, when, when Faustus first summons Mephistopheles, we get that bid about, like, Faustus wants Mephistopheles to appear as a Franciscan friar because that is the form that best suits him. The assumption there that, like, all Franciscan friars are devils in disguise, um, that they are all demonic in their way. He is definitely shutting down, you know, Catholic holiness. And honestly, the Franciscans were fairly famous for being especially pious among Catholic uh, monastic orders. The Franciscans were... Had, well, originally the, Fran the Franciscans had sworn themselves to a vow of poverty. That was like one of the key distinguishing characteristics of the Franciscans. But that kind of backfires and like changes historically. Um, at the very least, he, like Marlowe and is definitely like talking about how hypocritical and how you know evil Catholicism actually is. 
But notice, too, that their big adventure with the Pope, where they're, like, screwing with the Pope, and the Pope's like, mm, I just got this really great food from the Bishop of Milan, and Faust is like, bam, I smack it out of your hand. And the Pope is like, what? How did that happen? What, who did that? Because Faustus is invisible. The Pope is like, all right, well, I guess I'll just eat this other great thing from the, you know, Cardinal in Florence. And Faustus is like, slaps, denied. And the Pope is like, what? How did that happen? And then finally he's like, well, I guess I'll just drink this cool thing. And Faust is like, wow. I'll take that. And the Pope is like, what's going on? And then, like, Faust starts beating them up and, like, the, the cardinals come back in and they all are like, cursed be the one who hit the Pope. Cursed be the one who stole the Pope's food. Cursed. And, like, Mephistopheles and Faust just, like, throw fireworks at them and all these cardinals are just running around in complete disarray. Like, the absurdity, the farce of the situation is definitely, you know, partially entertainment. Like, it's just funny to see a bunch of dudes in fancy robes running around while, you know, a guy dressed out in a de uh, devil costume is chucking fireworks at him. But notice that this is absolutely an anti-Catholic propaganda in its own right. Like, Marlowe is absolutely making fun of the Catholics. Notice that, you know, the Pope and all of his cardinals are like, be gone, foul demon, and here is literally a demon who is not responding in any way. They are utterly powerless um, before Mephistopheles and Faustus. Like, this is definitely a work designed to sort of make fun of Catholics and talk about how awesome Protestants are. Um, but the other side of this is that whole faith versus works question. Again, the sort of key thing that divides the Protestants and the Catholics, the key issue that has sort of like turned into the, the big, you know, debate between Luther on the one hand and, and the like Council of Trent and the Counter-Reformation on the other is how much do works play a role in the whole business of salvation? See, typically Catholic teaching is that works play a huge part. Like you are justified by faith, but you are sanctified by works. Um, and that means not just like you have to be a good person, but also, you know, you have to receive the sacraments, you have to be baptized, you have to, you know, attend mass regularly, you have to receive last rites. Um, that is what ultimately decides whether or not you are saved or not. Luther, on the other hand, was hard against this. Luther and Calvin after him both emphasize you are saved by faith alone. You do not need works. A guy in his deathbed can convert to Christ and be saved. No purgatory, no elaborate series of indulgences, no Catholic Church being able to tell you whether you go to heaven or whether you don't. That does not matter. It is just a relationship between you and God on the basis of your faith alone. Um, and notice that Faustus, by all intents and purposes, fails the test of sanctification for Catholicism but could still theoretically pass it by the test of Protestantism. Like Faust is a bad dude. He has sold his soul to the devil. He has given up all hope of being saved. And yet, all he needs to do, by a Protestant's lights, is repent, and he can still be saved. And notice that there are multiple times throughout the text, like the primary like force of dramatic uh, decision is when he is faced with should I repent or not? He gets multiple opportunities. Multiple people push him to repent, and Faust inevitably does not, for one reason or another. So, like, when he's talking to his good and evil angels, and the good angel is like, you can always repent, you can always come back from this, 
on at the very beginning of scene six, like right before all of the seven deadly sins show up because, you know, Mephistopheles and Lucifer are getting nervous, the good angel tells him, Faustus, repent, yet God will pity thee. This is after he's made the bargain. Like what the good angel is suggesting is Faust can still come back from this. Either the, the agreement is not binding or it doesn't matter and repentance will still trump that. God will still pity him. Um, just because he signed his soul away does not mean he has to despair. Again, later when we meet the old man, like towards the end after Faustus has summoned up Helen for, for his buddies, the scholars, this random old man shows up and starts sort of like challenging Faustus to repent again. So notice, you know, right there towards the beginning of scene 13, after Helen has departed, after she's passed through, um, the old man says, Ah, Dr. Faustus, that I might prevail to guide thy steps unto the way of life, by which sweet path thou mayest attain the goal that shall conduct thee to celestial rest. Break heart, drop blood, and mingle it with tears, tears falling from repentant heaviness of thy most vile and loathsome filthiness. The stench whereof corrupts the inward soul with, no, with such flatigious crimes of heinous sins as no commiseration may expel. But mercy, Faustus, of thy Savior sweet, whose blood alone must wash away thy guilt the old man is saying you know it's not too late you can't save yourself you never could have saved yourself like de deal with the devil or no deal with the devil it was never up to you but if you ask your savior for salvation if you repent god will have mercy on you and you will be saved the whole bargain with the devil does not matter it's faustus who says yeah it does and Faustus doesn't know, he doesn't understand. Where art thou, Faustus, he says. Wretch, what hast thou done? Damned art thou, Faustus. Damned, despair and die. He'll call, hell calls for right. And with a roaring voice says, Faustus, come, thine hour is almost come. And Faustus now will come to do thee right. But the old man doesn't give up. And importantly, what he says next gives us a hint of how close Faustus actually is to salvation, that all that stands between him is this repentance. Ah, stay, good Faustus, he says, stay thy desperate steps. I see an angel hovers o'er thy head, and with a vial full of precious grace offers to pour the same into thy soul. Then call for mercy and avoid despair. That's all it takes. The angel is right there. It's standing right over you. It's got the vial of grace. It's ready to pour it. It's just like the business of a moment for it to tip it just a little farther and the drops of grace to fall all over you. All you have to do, Faustus, is repent. Call for mercy and avoid despair. And yet Faustus says, Ah, my sweet friend, I feel thy words do comfort my distressed soul. Leave me a while to ponder on my sins. And immediately after, he's starting to repent. After he says, Accursed Faustus, where is mercy now? I do repent, and yet I do despair. Mephistopheles immediately interrupts and is like, Hey, was somebody talking about repentance? We talked about this, right? Like, you're not allowed to repent. That's totally not something you can do. So why don't we just, like, sign in blood again just to be... Like, what even is this? What is Mephistopheles' game here besides just distracting Faustus from making his repentance? Presumably the bargain isn't binding for whatever reason, because otherwise why would Mephistopheles need to renew it? If it was binding, then presumably Mephistopheles has nothing to worry about. But literally every time... 
that Faustus starts to turn away. Hmm, maybe I should think about God's creation of the world. And Mephistopheles is like, oh, nope, we're thinking about hell now. When Faustus says, hey, maybe I could, you know, talk to Jesus about it. Don't say Jesus. Nope, nope, nope. You're only going to talk to hell. When he's right on the verge of repenting here, when the angel is right over his head and he says, I repent, but I despair. Mephistopheles is like, hey, who wants to renew their bargain? Like, it, obviously Mephistopheles is paranoid. This is a really tense situation for Mephistopheles. Faust is convinced he's doomed, that he never had a chance, and he keeps reassuring himself. Yep, no chance, in despair, never had the chance. Once I signed my soul away, it was over. Doesn't matter what God wants, what mercy is available, what Christ is, who cares? I signed my soul, that's all there is to it. Mephistopheles is like, yep, 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 yep. And just to be sure, maybe sign again, just, you know, to, uh, we don't want there to be any ambiguity. Faust is convincing himself he's damned when he's not. He could turn away at any time, it seems. Marlowe certainly seems to be emphasizing that with every opportunity that comes up. But at the same time, he doesn't. And that's where the real question lies here. If Faust can be saved or if Faust can't be saved, ultimately doesn't come down to the bargain except insofar as Faust believes that the bargain is binding. Faust doesn't want to repent, presumably because of the bargain, because of the power that is being offered to him. But at the end of the day, that's the only reason. Like, all that stands between him and repentance is him repenting. That's it. And Mephistopheles even mentions that, like, Faust gets mad at the old man for trying to dissuade him. He's like, dude, why did you do that? And he says, torment, sweet friend, that base and crooked age, that old man that durst dissuade me from my Lucifer with greatest torments that our hell affords. And Mephistopheles once again hits a wall. His faith is great, he says. I cannot touch his soul. But what I may afflict his body with, I will attempt, which is but little worth. The old guy is immune. All of Faust's incredible power, all of the power that Mephistopheles wields that's at Faust's disposal can't do a damn thing to one faithful man. He's old, he's brittle, like the devils could beat the crap out of him and it doesn't matter. When the devils in fact show up to sort of threaten and, and torment the old man, his response is, Satan begins to sift me with his pride, as in this furnace God shall try my faith. My faith, vile hell, shall triumph over thee. Ambitious fiends, see how the heavens smile at your repulse, and laughs your state to scorn. Hence hell, for hence I fly unto my God. He's not afraid. There's nothing they can do to him. He is immune to anything that they can do. They can destroy his body and it won't matter. Dude's going to hell any or dude's going to heaven anyway. Nothing Mephistopheles or any of the, his devils or Faust or Satan himself can do can stop this guy from going to heaven. And meanwhile, all it would take for Faust to be rescued from hell is one act of repentance, an act that he is unwilling to do. Now, I think that it is especially telling that the last decision Faust makes, the last thing he chooses to do in this scene that sort of ultimately dooms him is, weirdly, overturning a decision he made quite a while ago. You'll remember back when we were talking about, you know, like... Uh, the things that Mephistopheles can't do right after the bargain, Faustus asks for a wife. And Mephistopheles 
slyly changes the subject. Like, why are we talking about a wife? A wife. We could. You could have all the sex you want. What? what what's the point of a, of a wife? And Faustus is like, uh, that's not a wife. That's a devil in a prostitute's costume. You're not fooling anyone. And Faust doesn't want this. Faust wants an actual wife. Here we see the script flipped. Remember, like, this scene starts with all the scholars hanging around. They're like, hey, dude, can you show us Helen? Like, the hottest woman who ever lived. The famous Greek woman whose face launched a thousand ships. And Faust is like, yeah, no problem. And he summons up Helen, and Helen, like, walks in front of them. They're like, whoa, she is so hot. Oh, my gosh. And Faust is like, yeah, she really is hot. And then we have this whole interaction with the old man, where the old man is like, dude, you're right on the verge of salvation. Just accept salvation and repent and that's all you need to do and instead Mephistopheles shows up it's time to redo the bargain and finally at the end of this conversation Fausta says one thing good servant let me crave of thee to glut the longing of my heart's desire that I might have unto my paramour that heavenly Helen which I saw of late whose sweet embracings may extinguish clean these thoughts that do dissuade me from my vow and keep mine oath I made to Lucifer he wants to hit that. Helen was just walking in front of all of his dude friends and he's like, you know, I think I'll have sex with that extremely attractive woman. Which shouldn't come as a terrible surprise to us. Again, like Faust has been pretty selfish this entire time. But notice, we can't conjure people, remember? Back in the court of Charles V, when he was asked, like, show me Alexander the Great, and Faust was like, oh, we can't do actual people, but we can do spirits dressed up as people. And the guy's like, eh, I guess that's good enough. Notice this is exactly what's happening again. This isn't Helen. This isn't a flesh and blood woman. This isn't, like, the person from ancient Greece transported to the present. This is another spirit dressed up as Helen. In short, this is the exact same situation that Faust was facing when Mephistopheles conjured up the, the hot harlot, the devil dressed up as a prostitute. This is just a devil dressed up as Helen. And in case you think that I'm like making this up and then I'm like reading too deeply into the text, like check the freaking Dramatis Personae. It says literally spirits in the shape of Alexander the Great, of his paramour, and of Helen of Troy. Marlowe knows this. Marlowe knows that Helen is a dodge. And this is actually the moment that Faust truly damns himself. He no longer wants a wife. He no longer wants human contact. He just wants the sex. And he doesn't care where he gets it. And it doesn't matter that it's a demon or a spirit that's providing it. But the question I want to sort of follow up with is, why did Mephistopheles want him to avoid a wife in the first place? Why did Mephistopheles get so cagey the minute that Faust has said, I want a wife? And I think this ties exactly back to what we were talking about with Dante. A wife could redeem him. If he had a, an actual human relationship, like a real heart-to-heart -heart wife, if he actually had somebody who cared about him, this could have gone a whole lot differently. Notice that, you know, all of the characters in this book have, like, virtually no interaction with Faustus. Like, he's got Wagner, his, you know, the, the guy who, you know, lives in uh, Faustus's house and is basically like his overpaid graduate student. Wagner and he have, like, one scene together. The rest of the time, Wagner's just, like, screwing around with the clown or, you know, uh, Mephistopheles. 
they don't actually have a relationship. You know, Faustus has his relationship with Cornelius and, and like the other scholars, but we see them in only like half a seat. Here he's with totally different scholars who he's showing Helen to. And the rest of the time he's bouncing around Europe, meeting the emperor, meeting, you know, the, the pope, meeting the random horse courser, meeting Robin the weirdo who apparently wants to summon his, who like steals the book so he can summon his own spirits. Faust doesn't have any other human companions. And presumably if he had fallen in love, if he had been in love with a wife, that might have saved him. Just like Dante is emphasizing, where he says that, you know, Beatrice is what ultimately saves Dante and brings him through, you know, the circles of hell safely, brings him out of his dark woods. So it seems that Marlowe is suggesting something similar. If Faust had married, if there had been a woman in his life, if he had experienced real love, that might have been enough to get him out of Mephistopheles' clutches if only because then he would have cared about something more than himself and seen beyond this despair, this sort of like illusionary despair. He would have recognized that when the old man says, the angel is right there holding the vial over your head, Faust might have said, yeah, I repent. I give up. I have something worth fighting for, worth living for, something to value my soul for. As it is... Faust is damned. Faust is destroyed. So I think that, that is at the very least a hint, and it is important. It is an important omission here that we will see again. Other Faust stories will introduce that character, that wife that he wants, give Faust a chance at love, and we'll see how that radically transforms the whole trajectory of the Faust story. So keep that in mind when we move on to, to Goethe's Faust especially and to the Master and Margarita and the other Faust stories in between. Frequently, the solution, at least as Marlowe is suggesting it and these other Faust writers will, will elaborate on it, frequently that solution is other humans, human contact, and especially love. That sometimes is enough to save. Now as it is, that's kind of buried in there. Like, it's not something that Marlowe is explicitly interested in talking about. He might allude to it, but that's as close as he's going to get. Maybe that's because he's among a hard bunch of hardcore Protestants who wouldn't tolerate this Dantean romantic nonsense. Um, could be he really isn't thinking about it that deeply. Who knows? Um, at the very least, it's something that he's artistically inclined to leave open. Um, and like a possibility in the text that we are welcome to sort of read into and interpret. What we are given as far as a moral is really straightforward. Like at the very end of scene 14, after, Mar after Marlowe's Faust is like consumed by the devils and dragged to hell as he was fated to do, the chorus shows up to deliver us an unambiguous moral. Cut is the branch that might have grown full straight, and burned is Apollo's laurel bough that sometimes grew within this learned man. Faustus is gone. Regard his hellish fall, whose fiendful fortune may exhort the wise only to wonder at unlawful things, whose deepness doth entice such forward wits to practice more than heavenly power permits." Notice what this moral is actually emphasizing here. Faust could have grown straight. Cut is the branch that might have grown straight. He could have grown straight. He could have followed the right path. His education was an admirable thing. 
When it says, and burned is Apollo's laurel bough, Apollo is the representative, uh, the symbol in Greek mythology of scholarship, of civilization. Faust, by being a scholar, was one of Apollo's boughs. But it is cut and burned. It sometimes grew within him, but now is gone. Faustus is gone, regard his hellish fall, whose fiendful fortune may exhort the wise only to wonder at unlawful things. What we are suggesting here is that this grand story, this hellish fall, his fortune may exhort the wise only to wonder at unlawful things. Don't fall into the trap that Faustus did. Don't wonder at unlawful things whose deepness doth entice such forward wits to practice more than heavenly power permits. By all means, study theology, study logic, study law, study medicine, but do not inquire into mysteries beyond what God allows. Don't look into the occult, don't look into magic, don't look into summoning demonic spirits, because that will destroy you in the end. At the end of the day, as much as you know, there is this sort of romantic tendency in Dr. Faustus, as much as there is this very anti-Catholic tendency in Dr. Faustus, a large part of what this text is engaged in talking about is scholars are bullshit. Science is bullshit. Do not seek mysteries, do not seek answers to mysteries that are beyond human reach. If you do, that knowledge will destroy you. Think about how that's reflected throughout this text. It is his pride, it is Faust's pride in his accomplishments, his scholarly accomplishments that leads him to summon the demons in the first place, and yet it is his stupidity and his ignorance of theological truth that leads him to not to real to like falsely think that he is damned when he isn't. If he had known the right things, if he had studied the Bible and not occult Necronomicon mysteries, he probably wouldn't have come to this horrible end. If he had studied ethics, perhaps he wouldn't have wasted all his life screwing around with the Pope and Charles V and company. Maybe he could have made something of himself. If only he had curtailed his studies to what God permits what heaven permits knowledge is dangerous is what faust is or is what marlowe is telling us through this story of faust and only pursue knowledge within the boundaries of good thinking and what the bible prescribes it's a very protestant notion again you know the the catholics are presented as fools here just as the scholars are usually presented as fools here for marlowe their work is self-destructive and we should be cautious of it keep this in mind because this whole idea of knowledge being dangerous is gonna also show up multiple times in the texts to come the fallibility of human learning and the the possible dangers associated with it are going to be important themes for us in here um, so keep that in mind along with all the other stuff we talked about here um, in the meantime, I did, I do hope you enjoyed the text. I do always enjoy reading that one. Like it's a little tough and it's a little stiff and it's a little weird, but damn, if it isn't good when it's on, when it's on its A game. Um, for next time we have another giant like PowerPoint 
lecture video thing. Uh, we're going to talk about the 17th and 18th centuries. I'm going to somehow try and do 200 years in like an hour and 15 minutes because I am insane. Um, we're going to cover the scientific revolution. We're going to cover the, the Baroque in art. We're going to cover the Enlightenment and the Rococo. And, oh, it's there's just so much. It's almost overwhelming. Um, I will link the video. Uh, like, you can find it on, on the Canvas modules page, and I'll probably link it to this description as well once it's up and running. Um, in the meantime, be sure to watch all those Khan Academy videos and the other videos that I've got provided so you can like know more about the stuff that I'm talking about. And we'll get another dose of history next time.